As we uh, come to the uh, end of Revelation 3 today, we come to the end of the seven prophetic words to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, the churches to whom the book of Revelation was addressed. We come as well to the end of the first major section of the book of Revelation. And next week in chapter 4, we're going to shift into a very different gear, a, a higher gear, as we enter that section of the book. And along the way so far, we have encountered one consistent reality, probably more than one, but there's one I want to uh, draw to our attention this, this morning. And that is that while Jesus is very much aware, he's very much aware of the external challenges that face these seven churches in Asia Minor, he is most concerned with their interior life, the internal life of the churches. How to encourage them, how to comfort them, how to correct them, how to challenge them especially in their temptation to compromise in their faith. So years ago, and I know that the little story I'm about to tell you, some of you will go, that's not very good for a pastor to say. I already know this. I'm telling you as an act of confession, so send an email to someone else. (laughs) You have my permission. Years ago, when uh, former ECC pastor uh, Don Bodie was here, in fact, I think it was actually in the interviewing process, we were talking about something about pastoral life, and I must have been dealing with something, something going on or a couple of things going on that were very frustrating to me, and I just said to Dawn, well, sometimes people are stupid. <clears throat> and she said, rightly, graciously, correctly, she challenged me, she said, she actually preferred to say that sometimes people misbehave. Touché. And as much as you and I long for a church community that does, that does not misbehave, that more perfectly reflects the teaching and the character of Jesus, we know we're never going to find that perfect church this side of the new heavens and the new earth. We will always need correction from Jesus. We will always need correction from the presence of the Holy Spirit, from the pages of Scripture, from the discernment of the community in which we worship. As 19th century English pastor and author Charles Spurgeon famously said, if I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Or, if you prefer, Groucho Marx, I refuse to join any club that would have me as a member. In his commentary on the seven churches in Revelation, and after praising the church and churches in general, then and now as glorious places, Eugene Peterson says that although we are shaped and sustained by the living truth of Christ, and we are marked by symbols and rituals that affirm the security of God's love for us, there are, quote, always some and often many who live as parasites on these vigorous truths and fatten on the red blood of redemption. He's a poet. By that, I think what he means is that there are always people who do not seek to live as Jesus teaches us to live. They are just hoping to get into heaven when the time comes, but they do not seek to live according to the teaching of Jesus. And those people give the rest of us a bad name. Concerning these parasites, harsh as that may sound to our ears, uh, Peterson continues, Outsiders often see nothing but these parasite persons and suppose that they are characteristic of the church. They are not. 
any more than barnacles are the hull of a ship. No church ever existed in a pure state. The church is made up of sinners. The fleas come with the dog. This morning, we are on the final prophetic word to the last of the seven churches in Asia Minor, the church in Laodicea, and this dog friend has fleas. One more look at the map. We've traveled all the way around. We're down to Laodicea. And one more time, we've been looking at each of these prophetic words again from five components that are in most of the letters in some order. There is some variation, but by and large, these are the components once more. Christ to a word of commendation, to a word of condemnation, to a word of challenge, and then finally to the conqueror's promise. We begin with Christ. The first component where Jesus identifies himself, usually by borrowing from one of the phrases that appeared in John chapter 1, I mean in Revelation chapter 1, when John saw the vision of Jesus. But this week and last week, he's used all of them up. He can't go back and get any more of them. So he goes elsewhere for the Christ statement. Let's read it. Verse 14 of chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. We've said before that uh, John has a, a, a love of the Old Testament. There are Old Testament allusions and quotes all over this book. He goes back in this one to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 65, verse 16, where in the midst of promises of both salvation and judgment, we read this. God says this. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the one true God. Whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by the one true God. And the word translated true there is the Hebrew word amen. It's the same amen that we say at the end of our prayers, or more to the point and more relevant still, it's the amen that sometimes people will shout out in a sermon when they hear something they agree with. Well played. I paused hoping somebody would do it. You're saying, yes, I agree. So the common English Bible, the CEB, translates that phrase uh, as the God called amen. The God called amen. Elsewhere, amen might be translated as faithful. Hopefully you're seeing what's happening here. So there are three ways to translate the Hebrew word amen into Greek or to write it. Faithful, true, or simply to leave it in the Hebrew and transliterate it as amen. In Revelation 3.14, Jesus pulls all of them together Thus, identifying himself as God, the Amen, the faithful, and the true witness. Now, that word witness is a word that, uh, from which we get our word martyr. It later came to mean, not initially, it was witness, but it later came to mean someone who died because of their faith. This was true of Jesus, of course. He, too, was put to death for his faithfulness. He was the true, faithful martyr. Jesus also identifies himself as the ruler of all creation. This refers both to creation in its original sense, the the first book of our Bibles, first chapter of our Bibles, and the new creation, which is referred to in the last couple of chapters of the last book of our Bibles. In John chapter 1, the Gospel of John, we are told the word Christ was with God at creation and that through him all things were made. In Revelation, things are moving toward the new creation. This, once again, is where we expect Jesus to give a word of commendation. We expect him to celebrate something they're doing well. But apparently they aren't. So he doesn't. He skips over it and goes right for the jugular in a word of condemnation. He names their lukewarmness and their blindness to their own sin and compromise and complacency in the harshest of terms. Verses 15 and 16. I know your deeds. 
that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. When I preached on this passage in 2018, I noted that this reference to water as cold, hot, or lukewarm might be a connection to very literal lukewarm water uh, in the city that the city had access to as it, as it came from elsewhere. They had to get their water from elsewhere. By the time it reached Laodicea via the aqueducts, it was no longer hot, no longer cold, just lukewarm, room temperature. But I've discovered since then a few scholars who point elsewhere to the cultural realities surrounding ancient Roman dining practices. And you will either love this or absolutely hate it, but I want to put it out there because it is part of what scholars are wrestling with because it is a bit disgusting. When Romans gathered to feast at a banquet and to gorge themselves on food, possibly food sacrificed to idols, remember that, to make room for yet more food, to continue to indulge in the sin of gluttony as much as possible, they would induce vomiting. Lukewarm water was known to move the process along. The NIV and other translations clean that up a bit, but the word they translate as spit you out of my mouth is more literally vomit. We're not going to stay there in this uh, part of the conversation too long. After all, some of you are still digesting your breakfast or the donut, piece of donut you had when you came in the lobby this morning. More importantly, we tend to think today of lukewarmness as wishy-washy, as somewhere between hot and cold. And we tend to think of cold as bad and hot as good. But in the ancient world, both hot and cold were good. Lukewarm, not so much. So what we have are two extremes. Not between hot and cold, but hot and cold on one side as being useful and good, and lukewarm on the other. That is, you can be useful or you can be somewhat useless, lukewarm. Both hot and cold water are differentiated within their environment. They stand out by their temperature. But the temperature of lukewarm water is not any different than the environment in which it finds itself. This was true of the church in Laodicea. Their temperature, their spiritual temperature, was lukewarm. It was undifferentiated between them and the culture in which they live. They blended in. The word of condemnation continues in verse 17. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Laodicea was the wealthiest city in that region. It appears that these early followers of Jesus had been seduced by that wealth. They think they are rich, and materially speaking, they probably were. But they are anything but rich in terms of the things that matter most. They think they have everything they need, but they are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Could Jesus be any harsher or more intense? Scholar Michael Gorman says that Laodiceans are not merely compromising to survive, not merely going along to get along. They are fully, quote, fully embracing the lifestyle and values of the elite and powerful. But Jesus does not leave them where they are. He offers a word of challenge. The fourth component in these seven prophetic words to the churches. If they are wretched, if they are pitiful, poor, blind, and naked, what are they to do? Verse 18. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. They think they're rich, but they are wretched, pitiful, and poor. If they want to be truly rich, Jesus says they must buy gold from him that has been refined in the fire. Now, that language of being refined in the fire is a picture, a metaphor for suffering. They are to, they are to embrace the suffering that comes from being faithful to Jesus because that has a purifying effect on them. Enduring suffering, suffering will, uh, doing it well, will make them spiritually rich. Like back in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, where we encounter the church in Smyrna. There Jesus said of them sort of the opposite of what he's saying to the Laodiceans. Chapter 2. I know your afflictions and your poverty, <clears throat> yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. They have nothing, Jesus says, but in fact they are rich. How are they rich? Their suffering has purified them, and so they are spiritually rich. The Apostle Paul speaks of something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He commends his co-workers and himself to his readers by listing out mostly, if you read the whole passage, mostly all the ways they've suffered, all the ways things have gone badly for them. In verses 8 through 10, he adds that he and his companions are Genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. In, it is their poverty, it is their affliction, it is their suffering that bring them spiritual wealth. They have nothing, but they possess everything. <clears throat> To buy gold refined in the fire, then, is to suffer. It is to deny this spirit of self-sufficiency, the, the wealth of the Roman Empire, for the sake of their faith. Not only are they to buy gold and become truly rich, but they are also to buy white clothes to wear and salve to put on their eyes. They must repent of their alignment to the power and the wealth and the violence and the control of empire, and they must be willing to suffer for their faith, even to the point of death, if it comes to that, as it did for Jesus. Again, the faithful and true martyr. In this way, they're going to be able to buy the things they need to become truly rich in the things that really matter, as we've said. In this way, their poverty, their blindness, and their nakedness will be alleviated, healed, and covered. Jesus' word of challenges continues, verses 19 and 20. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And this is something that we, we noticed back in 2018 when we, it was determined that this was a biblical, this, picture, this story was a biblical metaphor for us, a picture of where we as a congregation were and where we needed to go. Jesus is on the outside of the church knocking on the door. He wants them to hear him and let him in. Now to be clear, we cannot take this too literally. This is a, this is a metaphor. Jesus is never truly on the outside. <clears throat> 
of the church at Laodicea or of our congregation five or six years ago. But we, like they, can be seduced by lesser things that will sometimes masquerade as important or necessary. Wealth, power, control, the favor of the empire, to name a few. But even in the harshest of prophetic words that we have encountered so far, Jesus has not given up. He is still knocking. He is still inviting. He is still seeking the people in the church in Laodicea and us all. And in this way, Jesus is more persistent in his knocking than, can you guess? Sheldon Cooper in the Big Bang Theory. This was a running gag on the show, if you don't know it. It's Penny, 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 or Leonard, or whoever. It began in season two, and it ran 11 more years. That's persistence. But it's not as persistent as Jesus knocking at the door in Laodicea. This image of Jesus knocking at the door is by early 20th century artist, covenant artist, a part of our denomination, Warner Salmon. It has been used to invite people to faith in Jesus. It has been used as as a, a way to do evangelism. In fact, if you Google it, this particular image, it will sometimes be described as Christ knocking at our heart's door. But Revelation 3.20 is not about Jesus knocking on the door of the hearts of people who haven't come to know him yet. It's not about evangelism. It is about people who already know Jesus but aren't living the way Jesus has taught them to live. It's about discipleship. To those who first heard this message, to congregations through the last 2,000 years, right up to us today, this is a call to take note of where we have compromised in our faith and to repent and to resurrender our lives to Jesus in a fresh way. And while these words may seem harsh, it is no small thing that Jesus says in verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. That is the heart, the center of this prophetic word. This is where it starts, with Jesus with his persistence, with his love for us, no matter what. And if you don't know what to do with this passage or where to start, you start there. You start with the love of Jesus. It's the most important part, if we're to read this correctly. Jesus began this prophetic word with the image of a meal, a a Roman meal, a self-indulgent and gluttonous meal, centered around the indulgences of eating food, likely sacrificed to idols, and purging oneself in order to be able to indulge even more. But Jesus ends this prophetic word longing to dine with us in fellowship at the table. A meal where the main attraction isn't the food, but Jesus himself. One of the prayers of for grace, that is a part of the Ignatian spiritual exercise that Kim and I have been engaging in for the last two years plus, is this. I pray for the following grace, to know Jesus more intimately, to love him more intensely, and to follow him more closely. To know Jesus more intimately, to love him more intensely, and to follow him more closely. That is the key to dealing with compromise for the Laodiceans and for us all, that we may continue in our journey of faith further up and further in. And finally, we come to the conqueror's promise. What those who are faithful to Jesus will receive when they are victorious. Verse 21. 
To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Almost all the promises that we've encountered in these seven words to the churches so far in chapters 2 and 3, almost all of them appear in the last two chapters of Revelation again. Chapters 21 and 22. Jesus keeps his promises to the seven churches. But this image... This image of us sitting down with Jesus on his throne appears in a different way much earlier, in chapters 4 and 5. There we meet 24 elders who sit on thrones that surround God's thrones. These elders appear to be human beings, not angels, not spirits. They appear to be human beings because they are adorned with golden crowns or wreaths. They wear white robes. They sit on thrones. All things that Jesus has been promising will come to those who are victorious in these churches. In addition, the numbers mean a lot in Revelation. The number 12, 12 tribes of Israel. You know what? Every time I say 12 tribes of Israel, it comes out 12 tribes of Israel. I don't know why that is, but it just does. Try it sometime real fast, five times. 12 disciples. The number 12 and its multiples, in this case 24, seems to be an indication symbolically of the people of God. So it might be that these 24 elders on the thrones in chapters 4 and 5 are a picture, a foreshadowing, a glimpse of our future. And that is about all we can know. Somehow, someway, someday, we who are victorious will reign with God and with Christ on the throne. As we reach the end of this first major section in the book of Revelation, I, I want us to just pause. Just pause for a minute and consider what Jesus' prophetic words to these seven churches might teach us. I've only got four here, but I think you could find more. These are the four that just came to me as I was working on this. First, while each of these words were relevant to the churches they addressed, they are also relevant to any church at any given time throughout history as they encounter similar changes. That is, these very real churches symbolize dangers that can be common to any church since then, up to now, and beyond. The warnings and the promises that are given to them apply to us. Second, the overarching message is not to compromise with the empire. Not to go the way of Babylon or Rome, whatever our Babylons or Romes might be. Whatever tempts us to add something to Jesus or to give in to the idols of violence and fear and greed, these are our Babylon, these are our empire. Do not give in to the temptation to compromise. Third, When we are made aware of our compromises and our idolatry, we must repent. We must turn away from that idolatry, turn away from that sin, and turn and follow Jesus instead, even in the face of suffering, even if it might lead to our deaths. Fourth, we can find tremendous hope in the reality that Jesus is with us, that Jesus is persistent, that he does indeed rebuke and discipline those whom he loves and that he will deliver on his promises. The picture of Jesus, 
This picture of Jesus knocking at the door is not a picture of Jesus knocking on your heart or mine, but of the church. That said, the invitation is to us as individuals as well. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Where, where do we need to respond to what Jesus is saying to the church, what the Spirit is saying through Jesus to the church in Laodicea? Where in your life with God do you need to re-surrender or yield anew or recommit or return to something? Where in your life do you need to receive whatever word of correction Jesus might have for you and repent? And above all, where do you need to be reminded that Jesus rebukes, challenges, and disciplines those whom he loves? Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for our brothers and sisters, the church at Laodicea. We thank you for your strong word to them, though it causes pain. As we think about them, as we consider what it meant for us to consider these words for us a few years ago. We thank you. Above all else, you love us. You love us. You love us. God, I pray that we, wherever we are, if there's some nudging of your spirit about some response we need to have, to return to you, to repent, to renounce some area of compromise, or even to come to faith to you in the first place. God, would you speak to us and give us the courage to do it, to take whatever next step you would have for us. And we pray that our choices as we respond to these difficult words would honor and bless you. We pray, oh God, that they would bear fruit in our lives and for your kingdom. And we entrust ourselves to you. Help us, Lord God, to give ourselves to you anew and to hear whatever you would say to us and to follow through. And may you receive all the glory, all the honor, all the praise in Jesus' name.